for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's text comes from Galatians. Paul writes, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. This is the word of God for the people of God. Would you guys join me in welcoming Dr. John Enzer? As Nina, my former star student and current friend, said, my name is John, but as she also said, I'm not the real John. He is gone today. We have a number of things in common. We both spell our name correctly. Short for Jonathan, we both are relatively tall. We both married way out of our league, and I could hear John from his yurt saying amen on vacation. But that is unfortunately where the similarities stop. John is an unpretentious but excellent uh, preacher. I am not. (laughs) I'm a teacher, and so my core competency is really speaking at length, hour after hour about certain subject matter, putting sometimes the co-eds to sleep, as it said around uh, my, the parts of uh, campus where I teach, uh, woe if you have a Dr. Inzer class at 8 in the morning. So, I also consider John a very good friend, but I'm questioning everything at this point that he handed me such a challenging text. So with the uh, standards lowered and the text so intimidating, let's pray for a moment before we dive in. God, we thank you for the word. We didn't make it, and we stand in front of it, asking that by your spirit, you would make us more and more into the image of your son and our brother, Jesus. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Paul's language of spirit and flesh has been one of the most challenging things for me over the course of my life and my study to really get my head around. And I think one of the best ways that we can get at essentially what Paul is trying to get at, get at himself is really talk about watershed-defining moments in our lives, those moments that are so crucial that we really can understand that there was a time before it, there was the moment, and there was, in fact, the time after it. Those moments in our lives can be characterized, we know, by great joy and goodness, a new marriage, a new baby, citizenship, and a new country. But we also know that those moments, those watersheds in our lives can be characterized by grief and sadness and shock, the loss of a marriage, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a really important job, um, or as we know so many people around the world today, the loss of home. Whatever it is, these watersheds are really characterized by the simple idea that we know there is no going back to the good old days. It is Father's Day, so we will have all sorts of parent references, and there will be dad jokes. 
But for those of us that have embarked on the world of parenthood, we know that there is really just no going back. In my world, I know that I'm never going to have a simple elevator ride again. It won't happen. One boy, boy number two, will try to touch all of the lights, all the buttons on the panel, trying to illuminate it like a Christmas tree. Boy number one will be pushing the red button, uh, trying to call for security or things like that. I don't know what your story is, but I know all of us that have embarked on parenthood, we are never, ever going to enjoy again a simple thing called bedtime, are we? <laughs> never. We're, it's impossible. Each night, each night, we will meet these little people who have to be convinced yet again, yes, you do have to brush your teeth. It's a fight. Second, these pivotal moments really force us to remap reality in significant ways. If you were to look at my cell phone data usage, you would see that, in fact, I now spend the majority of my time around this little home that we have, and all of the, uh, a lot of my um, practices have, in fact, changed. With the arrival of young children, especially a newborn in our home, disappearing regularly for four hours to play a round of golf is no longer a recipe for a happy, a happy life. This may not be the same for everybody else, but that certainly is the case for us. Also, my tastes have changed. As I stay closer to home, all of a sudden I enjoy different things. I'm trying to grow an orchard in the backyard, which I'm sure will be a disaster. And I have come to learn a little bit about Pokemon cards and the Pokemon card game. I'm also convinced that there is no human alive on the planet today that actually knows how the Pokemon card game goes. And the third thing that we do is we marshal words in ways that give meaning to this new season of life. Ruptures in our life really call forth new representations. Consider the gently overused term, new normal. When I hear new normal, I think of Oprah and Dr. Phil, but actually the term goes all the way back to World War I. It kind of suggests the way in which the last century has been nothing but an endless stream of ruptures. I know that it's in some ways cliche, but one of the reasons we use this type of expression of new normal is because it gives voice to so much of what we're experiencing when, it in fact, when in fact we experience one of these watersheds. I know we're all traumatized by the pandemic, but this is a really good example of the ways in which we need words to give voice to the types of things that we're experiencing. Think of the new expressions that have emerged. Blur's Day, to speak to the temporal sort of disorientation that we feel as we're on Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting. We have essential workers, herd immunity, self-isolating. We need new language to give expression to the new apocalyptic world that we're experiencing. And words are the very thing that we use to help us make sense of this new world. I said I'm a teacher, and so that's my clever attempt to try to give voice to Paul's expressions of flesh and spirit. These are his new expressions or categories that articulate his remapped reality that stem from his apocalyptic moment, his rupture, that watershed in his life when he became convinced that Jesus of Nazareth wasn't a charlatan, he wasn't a failure, but he was actually Israel's true Messiah and the rightful Lord of the world. Emerging from that encounter, like us emerging from our own sort of watershed experiences, his vision tightens into a binary. For Paul, because of the Christ event and because of the Christ gift, what we think of as grace, everything for Paul is either the present evil age or it is new creation. 
It is either something that is under the control of God in Christ or it is just simply under the control of mere human traditions. It is either slavery or it is the freedom that Christ wants to give his creation or another way for Paul to say it. It is either flesh or spirit. For Paul, that binary is so strong that a decade later, Paul could write in Romans, you can go to the next slide, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. It seems pretty clear to me that we are really like at the epicenter of Paul's understanding of what we might think of as the human project or the human or human community, what we might say in a sort of clever academic sense of his anthropology. And so I think it's really important that we get what it is that he is saying right. If we get this right, then we might in fact get so much of the New Testament, its theology, its teaching, and where we're going this summer with the fruit of the Spirit. We might see it in a new way and experience it, the way in which uh, the writers of Scripture uh, intend. Before we get there, I want to say just a couple of things that Paul clearly does not mean, but are in fact really, con uh, really consequential misreadings of this language of flesh and spirit. The first thing that Paul does not mean is Paul is not referring to flesh and spirit as a contrast between the material world, say of Pokemon cards or frustrating elevator rides, versus the spiritual world, what we might think of as the afterlife or the universe next door, however it is that we might sort of think of that. This has been a popular but devastating misreading of Paul's language of flesh and spirit throughout the centuries. Uh, in it, what we actually find is that the material world associated with flesh, and this way we're sort of thinking about that meaty part that covers our bones and other uh, animals, uh, other mammals or things like that, is somehow uh, to be trapped. And when people overlay the gospel on top of this sort of misreading, the very idea of the gospel is that there is some sort of an escape. You get to leave this physical part of yourself behind, the corpse, and it goes to a better place of spirit in the future right? Um, by the way, this understanding or this misreading of Paul erupted into the early church in about the second or third century. And so there were all sorts of church mothers and church fathers that had to draw upon Paul to sort of help push back against it. Uh, one guy was named Irenaeus, and he said, no, 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 that's not Paul's language. In fact, the, the spirit and Christ are like the Father's right and left hands within creation, renewing creation and putting people back together again, not somehow moving people from the material world, which is sort of second rate to a spiritual world uh, in the future. Also, I think within this misreading, spirit with a lowercase s sort of begins to refer to this uh, essence within ourselves, our spirit, sort of the ghost within the machine that will leave the body behind and go to a better place in the sky. Now, you probably know at this point that many of us, especially around these parts, we've heard this sort of message before. And, and this is one of those things about um, what we might think of as, as like heresy. They, they might sort of fade away, but then all of a sudden they re-emerge with sort of the, the strength or the intensity of a thousand suns. And so the, these are things that we continue to sort of face within our own reading of the text. As, as a Paul scholar, so I'm going to play my Paul scholar card here. I could just tell you that if Paul had heard this, he would break out in a rash first, and then he would write a really, really angry letter. 
probably a bit like Galatians, if you've ever read it. He is ill-tempered at, cer- at certain moments because the gospel, getting the gospel right, is that important to him. No, Christ was raised from the dead physically, right? Read the end of Luke, and what does he do? He eats fish to prove that he is not sort of an apparition or a ghost or a spirit. He is raised, embodied in the flesh, and this is the hope of the gospel throughout the ages, that what God has done to Christ in raising him from the dead, he will do for our bodies when he renews the whole creation. And when we talk about the type of text that we're looking at this summer, flesh and spirit, and we talk about the gifts of the spirit, these are all things to enjoy now. So whatever Paul means when he talks about us being rescued from the present evil age, whenever he talks about, whatever he means when he talks about liberty from slavery, and whenever he talks about the gift of the spirit and the fruit of the spirit, these are not things to be delayed for later post-mortem. These are things that are active and possible now. All of this is creation affirming, and the gospel affirms creation. And if you want uh, solid ground to plant your feet, then the good place to start is the gospel is salvation for creation, not from it. Now, a second misreading that's related to the first, and I'm not going to explain it because I think I'd put you to sleep like I sometimes do to uh, my co-eds, might be worth like a cup of coffee if you're really interested in how they connect, but they are connected. Paul does not refer to flesh versus spirit as a reference to conventional established knowledge versus alternative knowledge and alternative uh, institutions. If you've lived around these parts, then you know a certain uh, dialect of Christianese that's spoken here. In this sort of dialect that we can sometimes use, the very word flesh can be code. It can be code for all the sorts of things that people do that are in the natural, right, that are opposite of the spirit, that are man-made. And so these are things that are in test tubes or in footnotes or whatever it might be. And spirit can sometimes be code for anti-intellectualism. The spiritual person gets to circumvent all of the the footnotes. They get sort of a cheat code, and they get to understand, in fact, uh, how things really are. This wholesale rejection that we sometimes experience with this misreading of spirit and flesh um, can sometimes cause us just to simply say no to experts and institutions, and we sometimes abandon rational thought altogether because it's all of the flesh. It's all of the natural. If you think I'm just a scholar here showing up here to grind an axe, I'm not. Um, if you know the Facebook leak of 2019 by a whistleblower um, within Facebook, what they found was of the top 20 Christian sites, frequented, or Christian pages frequented by Christians, 19 of the 20 were actually not real sites, but were run by Near Eastern country troll farms thinking about ways of sowing discord and disunity in our country. Think about that. When people who don't like how we live think about easy targets, evidence-free information, they look at us. They think we are, in fact, those easy targets. Emerging from the pandemic, I know that this discussion probably hits a nerve, so I think maybe a way to think about it differently is to visit the area of mental health. Sometimes in the spirit-flesh uh, misreading, 
We often use this as a rejection of counseling, therapy, and even medication because it's traditional, it's worldly, it's fleshly. Maybe it's fruit from the poisonous tree of Freud and Jung. The spiritual person can bypass all these things, oftentimes by a steady diet of prayer, Bible reading, and church attendance, all wonderful and really crucial, important things. While I have a constant plume of essential oils in my office, and while experts, including yours truly, get things wrong, except for today, I'm not getting anything wrong today, this is just simply not what Paul is talking about. Yes, Paul is clear. He did not reason his way to Christ. Rather, God revealed this reality to him. Yes, the mainstream establishment of Israel missed its Messiah. That said, Paul is not trying to create a community in which everybody makes their subsequent decisions on a spiritual hunch or their spiritual sort of spidey senses that no longer pays attention to established knowledge or footnotes or whatever and doesn't do their homework. Once God revealed himself in Christ, through a slavish death, then all of a sudden a new value system could emerge that's empowered by the Spirit so that those people who were co-crucified with the Messiah could live with that value system. One of the things that's really helped me over the last five years of all of the challenge and nonsense and argumentation is just to simply reclaim that so many of the things that we talk about as mainstream or traditional are really indebted to Paul. We wouldn't have them without him. We wouldn't have them without a crucified God. So what are some of those things? Think, for instance, of disability rights. Think of the pro-life movement. Think of medical experts who specialize in female health or pediatrics. You don't have that today in this world without Paul. You don't have that without a crucified God. This reminds me of another Paul, a guy named Paul Offit. He's a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania. In 1991, not 2021, there was a measles epidemic that swept through uh, Philadelphia. It led to hundreds and hundreds of children getting sick, and nine children died. Offit, the professor, was just so incredibly bothered by how unnecessary the suffering was. The contact tracing, we know that term now, led the outbreak back to two churches and their adjoining Christian schools. They had foregone vaccination and preferred instead in rejecting that sort of fleshly uh, knowledge to more spiritual solutions. Offit was so angry at this whole thing, he decided he was going to write a book, and he chose the title ahead of time, which is not, by the way, how you write a book. His title was going to be Bad Faith, how religious belief undermines modern medicine. As an agnostic or atheist, he thought it was going to hit the high notes of the new atheists like Chris Hitchens, Sam Harris, um, and Richard Dawkins. But he did his research. He was incredibly surprised at what he found in the origins of Christian faith. Offit had his own watershed uh, moment, and this is what he says. You can go to the slide. Independent of whether or not you believe in the existence of God, you have to be impressed with Jesus of Nazareth. At the time of Jesus' life, around 4 BC to 30 AD, child abuse, as noted by one historian, was the crying vice of the Roman Empire. Infanticide was common, abandonment was common, but Jesus stood up for children. He cared about them when those around him typically didn't. 
Offutt now calls Christianity the single greatest breakthrough against child abuse, and it is the headwaters for modern pediatrics. He decided to rename his book. He commented that, in fact, it is with Christianity that infanticide became illegal, and when Christianity spread through the Roman Empire, all of a sudden there was a new form of welfare that was out there for poor families so they wouldn't be tempted to either kill their children or sell them into slavery. That new name of his book was Bad Faith, When Religious Belief Undermines Modern Medicine. As often it shows, it can happen, but it doesn't have to happen. Sometimes happens whenever we misread Paul's categories of spirit and flesh as sort of understanding it in a way of pushing back against traditional established knowledge versus other sorts of alternatives. So if Paul doesn't mean spirit and flesh in the sense of material uh, versus immaterial, if he doesn't mean it in the sense of conventional versus uh, unconditional knowledge, then what does he mean? Let's read the passage again. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another, so that you are not to do whatever you want. For Paul, the flesh or the sarks, and the Spirit or the penuma, are two external powers or forces that have their own realms, and they are vying for control over communities and individuals. The sarks or the flesh are, uh, refers to the anti-God, anti-human, anti-community forces that results in self-obsession, other neglect, community destruction, and ultimately death. Even scholars, we have this really hard time of talking about what does Paul mean when he talks about the flesh. So I have two metaphors that I've tried to think of for you. One I think might be more appropriate for you, the other for my children. The first, Paul uh, pictures the flesh as essentially this moral black hole in the middle of God's creation. That everything that's within its gravitational pull is warped and distorted outside of its original design. For my boys, my two-year-old boys, and the types of things that they talk about, it is like the filthy, swirling, toilet bowl vortex that threatens to pull everything down and corrupt everything that it touches. And for Paul, the problem is that it, in fact, touches everything. Paul will actually say in Galatians 5.19, now, these are the works of the flesh. They are evident. I think we have a slide here. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, literally, magic drugs, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. For Paul, these are not simply vices that we would avoid. Instead, they're the inevitable result of what happens when people find themselves in this gravitational field or this riptide of the flesh. These are the present evil age that enslave people also to dehumanizing value systems. In chapter 3, Paul is actually quite clear that people that are in the flesh don't only do things that are inappropriate and dehumanizing, but they see people in dehumanizing ways, limiting them to their race or their gender or their socioeconomic status. To live under the flesh, as Paul will say a decade later, is to live a life of total frustration and total contradiction. You can go to uh, Romans chapter 7, we'll have this passage before us, but Paul actually creates a character with a first-person singular I. 
And it's pretty controversial. I would actually just give a plug real quick for Nina, who will be doing a class over Romans in the fall and the winter. It'd be a really great class to sort of get uh, deeper into the material. This is what Paul says of what it looks like to be in the flesh, in that gravitational field, or in that riptide of swirling toilet water called the flesh. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Romans 7, 14 through 17. No matter how much that I actually sounds like the middle school version of you, or if you were that uh, person who had a sibling and you guys had this rivalry and you knew that thing that you were about to do to that sibling was wrong and you felt remorse even before you do it, but you just couldn't help yourself and you pushed them into the pool. No matter how much that I sounds like our own experience, Paul is not not talking about himself, and he is not talking about the Christian. You can actually see it there in verse 7, 14. This is the morally debilitated person that is in that force field that Paul refers to as the flesh. They are incapable of living with God's covenant even when they know what it is. And so this makes sense as to why would Paul talk about the flesh as slavery. It is being enslaved to this type of living that God does not want for his creation. If we look at the Spirit, the Spirit has a capital S. And so here we are in the season of Pentecost where we're reflecting on uh, the third person of the Trinity. Here the Spirit is pro-God, pro-human, and pro-community. If the flesh is something that corrupts and obliterates God's original design, if it keeps people tethered to their past, well then the Spirit is the opposite. One of Paul's favorite ways of talking about the Spirit is to talk about it as a deposit. In 2 Corinthians 1, 22, he said, God has put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. In 1 Corinthians, Paul will talk to some of his disappointing uh, friends. And and he will list a whole uh, list of vices, all sorts of human naughtiness that these people had been involved in, including uh, some, some issues that show up in our culture wars. And Paul will say, such were some of you, but... You have been cleansed, you have been washed, you have been justified, you have been sanctified by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If, in fact, the flesh holds people in the past, the Spirit is something that is drawing people into the future that God has for them. In this way, Christians actually get to experience what it is that God will do in the world. And as Christians, as we experience this freedom of the Spirit, we actually become an advertisement for people around us to say, this is actually what's possible in human community. This is what's possible in a godly uh, group of people that are learning to live in harmony with the Spirit. As we heard that person that Paul constructed that sort of character The Spirit is really so much the opposite. Rather than estrangement, we find belonging. Paul says in Galatians, For God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So rather than being estranged, there is, in fact, belonging. Belonging to God and intimacy, but also the fact that we get to belong to one another because we all call God by the same name of intimacy. Rather than abandonment, We find with the Spirit endless help, what we might call intercession. 
Paul actually talks about the Spirit who helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Here this picture is quite interesting, especially when we think of some of the misreadings of flesh and spirit. Here the Spirit is not abandoning creation, but is always there to help. The picture here is of the church that is at the very places where the world is the worst, with those moments where we don't even know how to pray because the circumstance, what we see in the world, is just so awful. The Spirit is there with us. Creation is groaning. The church is groaning. The Spirit is groaning and helping, helping us and helping through us. And ultimately, if the flesh leads to death, then the Spirit leads to life from death. Listen to Paul in Romans 8, 11. The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in y'all. The spirit is the agent of the Christ event. It now indwells this believing community. It transforms this community in powerful ways. It forges for Paul's community and for us alternative ways of living. And so, so much of what Paul wanted to say in all of his letters is how does somebody move from this vortex, from this gravitational field to the realm of the Spirit? With the Christ gift, that watershed moment in Paul's life, he came to believe that a person, regardless of race or gender or economics, can be transferred from the space dominated by the flesh just with a simple ember of faith and can join themselves to become united with Christ. Listen to the language that Paul uses. This is the center of his gospel. I have been co-crucified with the Messiah. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We know that our old self was crucified with him. In Romans, he says, don't you know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him in baptism and death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in the newness of life. To unite ourselves with the dead but raised Messiah is, in fact, in a very real way to transfer people out of the, out of the flesh into the beauty of the Spirit. I think the picture that I sometimes have here, um, if you've ever gone to an airport, you know these giant moving sidewalks, the people movers. The Spirit is this people mover that is moving people out of the flesh into the realm of the Spirit. The Spirit is not moving people from earth to heaven in the afterlife, but it is moving people from this crippling reality that we see into the life that God always has for his people. Paul will say this, and this is our text for the summer, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, generosity, faithfulness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If the works of the flesh are not vices to avoid, like, hey, church, this, this week we're going to really work on staying away from the magic drugs, then these are not virtues that somehow we are just to practice. Like, let's all work on peace, everyone find their favorite yoga pose. For Paul... These are the otherwise impossible results of what it means for us to connect our lives with a Messiah who loved us and who gave himself for us. I think that sometimes it's really important because if you're like me, I can be around Scripture or be in sort of communities that talk about Scripture so much that it just becomes almost too comfortable. I think sometimes we actually miss how revolutionary Paul's words were. Nobody 
nobody had ever said this before. In fact, the default assumption in Paul's day, and I would actually say maybe even on our own, is that people were chained to their fate. You were simply the product of your environment, and there was nothing, nothing you could do with this, do about this. The early doctor, Hippocrates, wrote like this. Aristotle, who you've probably heard of, also said this. Notice, notice some of his language. Why are the Ethiopians and the Egyptians, that's Africans, why are they so bandy-legged? Is it because the bodies of humans are distorted by heat? Why are the inhabitants of warm places cowardly? And those who dwell in cold districts, courageous. Or the historian Herodotus would say, soft land breeds soft men. And so if you're a slave girl listening uh, to, to a letter like Paul's, you've grown up in a realm in which, look, if you have to deal with a horribly abusive conditions and circumstances, that's just because of your nature, and your nature comes from your environment, and there's nothing you can do about it. And if you're a wealthy landowning male who can do whatever you please, that's because of your nature, and your nature comes from your environment, and that's just the way things are. These are simply traits derived from our environment. To all of this, as my colleague Michael Halcom says, Paul and the gospel say, hold the phone. All humans, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, are under the sway of the flesh, that vortex or that force field. And there are some serious and vicious family traits that emerge from our, that environment. These are the works of the flesh. But the gospel is that all humans, no matter where they are from or their inherited traits or status, they can be transformed through faith in the Messiah and by the power of the Spirit into new creation. Humans are not chained to their fate because we have the option instead to be crucified with the Messiah. And what is true for him in his love and goodness and holiness can be true of us. Not just in some sort of legal fiction where God puts his Jesus glasses on and says, now I see you as such and such, but in real measurable ways. And so with that, I think we're in place just to read it quickly once more and get a sense of what Paul is saying. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another, so you're not to do whatever you want. This language Paul uses of walking by the Spirit and war against the Spirit or between the Spirit and the flesh makes it clear that Paul doesn't have in view sort of a passive approach to ethics. This is not like surgery where we pay some guy to knock us out and another person to put us back together and we wake up and we might be sore, but off we go. Paul believes in this moment, in this season of life, the danger of the flesh remains, but it no longer reigns. There is something that believers must do, a responsibility we must have, a competency we must learn, intentional choices we must make if the Spirit is actually going to produce in our communities this rich life that God has for us. If you are kind of a theology nerd, you know that oftentimes we have these discussions about what it, how, hu, how free are humans and God's sovereignty, right? And so we sort of see it in a zero-sum way that if, if I have the choice whether or not to pick my nose, then I'm infringing on God's sovereignty. And if God is truly sovereign, then how, in fact, can I have any sort of freedom? But this is not Paul's language. The more there is of God on the scene, the more responsibility and agency that that humans have, that we have, to make intentional choices about what it is that we become. 
To say this slightly differently in a way that might be challenging, the Christ gift, that is grace, is unconditioned. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves more or less worthy of it, but it is not unconditional, in which we might believe that nothing is expected in return. Are you that slave girl working in awful conditions in Asia Minor? Well, grace is for you. Are you a covenant-observing Jew, faithful to every inch of Torah? The Christ gift is for you. Are you a bacon-munching Gentile? The Christ gift is for you. The gift is open to everyone, and it is totally incongruous with any measurement of worth or status, men or women, Jew, Gentile, black, white, those who love guns, those who are scared of them, Arab and American, Democrat and Republican, people come as they are because there are no prior conditions that must be met save the ember of simple allegiance to the Messiah. But, and this is important, no one is allowed to stay as they are. God does his transforming work in us to change our values, our character, our conduct into conformity with his son by the power of the spirit. And we have an instrumental role to play. Grace is unconditioned by anything we bring to the table, but it's not unconditional. Real grace changes us. There are expectations that it produces real change. This is cooperation and community that are required. Paul uses language like crucifying the flesh, putting to death the deeds of the body, putting on the new person, presenting your bodies as living sacrifices, clothing yourself in the Lord Jesus. All of this is Paul's way of telling communities that we have a role to play in the type of transformation and this idea of the fruit of the Spirit being a real thing. It's the rewiring of neural pathways. It's cultivating moral courage. It's reclaiming our imaginations. It's learning what to run from and what to run to. It's like learning a new language or mastering a new skill. It's a long obedience in the same direction. With the enlivening of this spirit, those foreign ways of thinking and living become second nature. As Paul says elsewhere, learning to walk and learning to resist results in people who are no longer conformed to this default categories of a defunct age, but they're transformed by the renewing of their mind. And by testing, they can actually tell what God's will is and they can do it. And so when the bright lights come on, our lives produce the fruit of the Spirit. Or when the lights go out in the culture, or even in parts of the American church, we, we shine like stars in the, in the heavens. So I said, I'm not the real John. I'm not a preacher. And so I don't know where a passage like this might take us. But I have some guesses. Perhaps some of us have believed the gospel is salvation from the world rather than salvation for it. Maybe many of us were probably raised on a steady diet of that. Maybe some of us have been told the Jesus story is solely about moving people from earth to heaven, rather from the sphere of the flesh to the spirit right here, right now. And for some, maybe today is just simply a time to reclaim what the gospel really is. Perhaps some of us have come to believe that Christians, with the help of our religious vocabulary, we must reject established knowledge. We have to reject science. We have to reject all institutions as fleshly or natural, and we have to search for more spiritual alternatives. Maybe there are some of us in here who have been burned by experts. Maybe there are some of us who have felt the pull to be more alternative to fit this trend. Maybe there are others of us in here who are finding it harder and harder to reconcile our Christian witness with the anti-intellectualism that we see. Perhaps we just need to hear again. That's not what Paul means. None of it. 
is what Paul means. Perhaps some of us need to hear once again, we're just not chained to our fates. Maybe we've heard on this Father's Day, you're just like your father or mother, but it wasn't a compliment. Maybe some of us have come to believe the lie that the rest of our life will be determined by our environment. Maybe some of us have come to believe this about all sorts of things. That's just my nature. That's just the way I am. The gospel says, not a chance. Perhaps if you're like me, some of us need to reject our despair and cynicism about others. We see that guy, you know that guy, driving that really nice car all by himself, wearing a mask, and we say, yeah, I know who that is. I know what he's about. I know what's possible for him. I know where he's from and where he's going. Or we see that person in the big, loud truck with the don't tread on me flag. We say, yeah, I know who he is. I know what he's about. I know where he's from, and I know where he's going. Maybe today, in the midst of our hyper-polarized society, it's a day to believe once again that the Spirit is here to change the dehumanizing and limiting ways Not just that we see ourselves, but the way that we see others. Those ways we see others as just mere products of their environment or education who are destined for this or that. And finally, perhaps we see another school shooting or another hospital is shot up. We hear all the same talking points rolled out that weekend. We say, this is just the way it is. There's nothing we can do. The Spirit, the Christ gift, the opportunity to be co-crucified with Christ and to be a community that is filled with the Spirit. Well, as Francis Spooford said, the resurrection of Christ and the empowerment of the Spirit means this. More can be mended than you know. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew me, in all the world. You might want to say that privately in your own hearts. I'll say it again. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew me in all the world. Renew us as a community. We pray, God, that you would renew the whole world. And Holy Spirit, renew us and use us as you work to renew all things in the world. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.